Coming to you live from inside the globe, perched high atop the Bugle Planet building in sunny Gotham City. It's Hey Kids Comics with two guys who are always ready to seduce the innocent. Your hosts, Andrew Farmer and the Jedi Cole Houston. And now it's time for Hey Kids Comics. I, I, I've done uh, lemon face and lion face. You're done. Times. Okay, that's good. That's good. Many mumbling mice are making merry music in the moonlight. I'm Ladies and gentlemen, that. this is Hey Kids Comics. I'm I you remember about corpulent porpoises. But corpulent porpoises. Corpulent porpoises. Um, if you are listening to this in um, the Northeast, you're getting a um, a special variant version delivered to your podcast feed, in which all of that beginning stuff was cut out. Um, yeah. <laughs> It was a, a, it was what we call the professional cut. Yeah, um, yeah. But you're it's a rare, that. only one in thirty, <laughs> or have that. Cut. Yeah, but you have the to you have to listen the, to the last thirty to get that one. Yeah, if right. you're lucky, it's, right. it's completely randomized. To be honest, it's, it's, yeah. It's, there's there's no real way of, of judging it. But it is worth five times as much. Oh yeah, as this free podcast. Yeah, I, I sold my copy of the show. Uh, on, you know, of course, pre-airing on eBay. Oh, good, good. For nine dollars. Nine dollars. Bet you thought you were going to put your cats through college with that. I, I did, but then I uh, inadvertently had free shipping, so it, it really set. Oh yeah. Set us back. Yeah. Uh, side note: I hate it when I make that mistake. apropos of not hey kids comics i hate it when i'm selling something on ebay and i accidentally like mess something up and it ends up costing me more than uh the (laughs) item would have been to sell it it's happened like three times and uh that wasn't fun um yes so tonight we are revisiting an old gym um that that needs um a little bit of an update and a little bit of a magnifying glass. I feel like uh, for us, it's it's been a little, it's been a while since we've talked about it. It has been a long time. We've sprinkled it like the like the the salt meme guy. We've sprinkled it into certain shows periodically, um, as just a part of the whatever topic we're in. But we're gonna. It's take never a far look. from our thoughts. It really that. isn't, and never far from my hands either, because. There's a lot of comics that we're going to talk about tonight that I personally own still as as part of my collection um, because they say a sucker was born every minute and I was born in it in labor was uh, I think my mom was in labor with me for 10 hours. So that's a lot of minutes that I, that that I think counts. I think, it counts. I think it counts. Um, so, yeah, tonight we are revisiting. And, and a, what is your what is what is your this is title? this is Hey Kids Comics three forty four by the way out of style or Return of the Cash Grab right Cash Grab twenty twenty that's right <laughs> Cash Grab twenty twenty not the first issue of uh, of twenty twenty but this is Cash Grab twenty twenty um, just talking about because when we talked about um, all of the cash grabs in I believe it was what issue. Five, six, seven, eight in that range. Three hundred like ago, that. at least. Way back in uh, comics, commerce, and the almighty buck, if uh, memory serves. It was, a, it was a long time ago. It was in that. It was in that category. Um, that story arc. We didn't focus on much of the stuff that it has happened post nineties. 
we kind of focused really heavily on on the craziness of the 90s and we're going to touch on that a little bit again just for a better understanding of of what was going on and, and we're going to talk about some stuff that's happened you know almost since this show's been out or at least within the realm of you know 2000 to 2020 um everything from you know blatant character deaths for no good reason to um to uh the the wild the wild cornucopious uh advent <laughs> of the variant cover in all of its okay this will take you how this is how far back oh we're going. man all right this is from 2012's issue number eight. Eight years ago. Eight years ago, Cole. <laughs> Comics, Commerce, and the Almighty Buck. Uh, it was like die cut, poly bag. There's a whole, it, it's such a long title, it's cut off. That is wild. Eight years ago was our first, it was the first time we talked about this. I can't believe we've been doing this show for almost a decade. Almost that a decade. Insane. That's crazy. I think when we hit the ten year mark, we're gonna have the uh, uh, the death of Turducken from the uh, <laughs> from the Muggerville Seven. We need to have uh, cow hands a... holding him like Supergirl yeah. in Crisis on Infinite Earths. Exactly, and, and because we need that kind of coverage. We um, need to combine our what we what we need to do is combine our universe now. We need yeah, to, yeah it's gotten in the last 10 years it's gotten too wild we need to really combine it down well, you know we need to revisit a recent episode and, and publish a guide I, yes we do we, we we if we only if anybody out there wants to volunteer as our intern and listen to 350 issues of hey kids comics and write down every member of the muggerville um family the Mugger, yeah the muggerville seven plus any other uh insights we may have had that They've escaped us in all these years. It would be really appreciated because I don't think we're ever going to have the opportunity to do it. Um, yeah, <laughs> so I wanted to talk because we talk a lot about. It's just getting close to one a day. That's it. Just one a day. Uh, we, we've talked a lot about variants, variant covers in the past, and we're going to get into variants pretty heavily. And, and you have some really personal insight. Oh, absolutely, and I also have, uh, there's a new variant out there. Oh, no. Uh, A new uh, member of the Muggerville 7, or actually works with them. He's not actually a member. Oh, okay. But Muggerville, um, you know, you have a lot of, we did a whole show about, you know, we are the night, the the night heroes, those that stalk the nighttime crime. And um, in Muggerville, you know, crime is, is on such a constant that one of the most important heroes out there is Noon Knight. Oh, Noon Knight, sure. Knight in his bright yellow costume. <laughs> um, sure. Who stalks the day. Yeah. Um, he is a, a creature of the afternoon. <laughs> Listen to the children of the of the afternoon. Yeah, like pigeons and stuff. It's like squirrels. Yeah, but uh, yeah. So uh, you know, be aware that that if you want to, uh, you know, knock over a jewelry store, uh, Nakatomi Plaza during the day, beware. The, you know the the uh, the blazing heat of noon night. Of noon night. Yes. 
<laughs> Damn it. All right, so we're going to talk about <laughs> some some variants here. Not that we have time to kill or anything. I know, right? I am going to start this in 1984, on June 8th, in the Second Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, Cole. I'm taking you to a real weird place. Wow, all right? this is... Uh... Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the case stipulated or, or su- supposed, I guess, that baseball cards or sport cards, and this is going to come back into play later with uh, a few of our favorite players in, the, in Hey Kids comics, um, that sport that that pricing for sport cards in a in card price update, okay, which was a magazine were really, really close to Beckett's sports price guide. Do you remember Beckett's? Oh, I remember Beckett's quite well. In fact, I think Beckett's were based in the Dallas area. Beckett brought this to the courts because Beckett supposed that that meant that the that price card price update was cribbing from Beckett's to get their prices. Ah... So the end of the decision, and this is this is in the this is in the record, is a price guide authority. Not, and I'm reading this as a quote: a price guide authority for a collectible gains wide. If a price guide if a price guide authority gains wide enough acceptance, then it doesn't really matter how they calculate prices anymore. The prices, ah. yeah, are. The prices are what the guide says they are because the guide says it's that price. All that right? is some incredibly stilted logic. That is in the record in the courts. That is a statute in can, the courts. Can anyone read beyond this that it's effectively we don't really want to rule on this? Right. Like, why are you bringing this to like, just get out of my face type thing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... Flash forward um, past, well, oh, you know what? No, no, because we need to talk about this. The early days of variance. I was talking about, Cole and I often will do an entire show prior to the show. Um, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I it occurs to me, I don't know if we ever really establish what we're talking about here, other than the return of the cash grab, I guess. And that the, the cash grab in the 90s was, you name it, it was like, it was like the paleo, the uh, the Precambrian period of comics, and that evolution was trying every variation to see what would work. Sure, yeah. And comic publishers tried chrome and foil and lucite, or you know, translucent covers, holograms, uh, pictograms, glow in the dark, yeah, lenticular, embossed, foil embossed. Uh, and, you know, as we talked about, you know, a, a laser cut hole straight through the middle of that protector's issue or the mm-hmm. uh, the rifle fire issue parody that someone had done. Might have been too much coffee, man. I never did uh, look into what it was, but it was, it was an obvious counterpoint. But, you know, it was like literally everything. Poly bagged, blind bagged, uh, bagged with uh, collectible cards, entire, like you said, entire comic book covers made from cards that you have to put together to make the cover. You name it, it was tried. And a lot of it was tried because from a business standpoint, 
we're talking about a time period when Marvel went public. Oh, that's so true. That um, speaks heavily to why things yes were the way they were. Marvel went public. DC was going, you know, was 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 working their way into like the Warner Brothers deal. Um, all of these things were happening. They were beholden to shareholders. Their numbers had to go up year over year. You know, the marketing departments were in full swing. Whatever they could try and make work, they were going to try. And unfortunately, it worked. Or yeah. fortunately. I mean, depending on, you know, if you're on the board, I guess. Um, it worked. So back in the origin, back in the original kind of days of variant, what a variant cover was, and this was amazing to me to realize this because I didn't realize it. The original variants were ways to differentiate between the direct market and the retail market for comic books. Well, in and fact, it never dawned the, on me. Yeah, I, I didn't even think about that, even though I was very much aware of it. Uh, in fact, Diamond Comic Distributors takes its name from that very distinction. Mm -hmm. the, the retail rack jobber type publications that bore a barcode, when the direct market began to emerge, well, you know, mom and pop comic shop doesn't likely own any kind of, I mean, this was a time when in-store software and computers oh, of yeah. any kind were unheard of. Oh yeah. And, you know, God forbid a, the emergence of the barcode. So what you then have to differentiate, especially and probably for the benefit of the rack jobber who came and uh, collected unsold magazines and comics and such, and the retailer only paid for what was sold or stolen, what? Um, <laughs> then, you know, there had to be a way to tell the difference between the comics that they put on the spinner rack and the comics that Big Joe's Monster Comics was peddling. Sure. And so the pub, the answer at the publisher was to have the price that was in, a, a, especially on Marvel, you know, they were famous for having like, you know, pictures of the characters' heads mm -hmm. um, in a little square above the price. But the, the price was in a little square where for the direct market, as it was called, where the books that were unsold were not returnable. They um, had a little diamond shape. Right. And if you go back far enough and, you, you know, you dig around in a lot of uh, different, uh, like, quarter bins and stuff, you'll find the old books that had that diamond shape well, little price area. And that's literally where Steve Jeppe chose the name Diamond Comic Distributors because they were distributing those Diamond Comics. That's pretty amazing. And I'll tell you through my research and through personal anecdotal data that the little diamond back in the day when you could still go into a grocery store and buy barcoded comics yeah. and or you could go to your comic shop and buy little, you know, black. A lot of them had the barcode. I remember a lot of them had the barcode blacked out. Yeah, they would either box. have it a black box or uh, very often probably to save on, you know, ink. Yeah, on ink for thousands of units um, was just a simple uh, cross line. Yeah, that would have fouled the uh, the barcode. That the zeitgeist was 
those are coming directly from the distributor. Whether whether we knew at that point it was Diamond or whether we knew at that point it was directly from Marvel. Like, th- somehow on Mount Olympus they were delivering us comics. <laughs> and those had a, a higher perceived value than the barcoded ones. Yeah. So, you know, thus, thus a weird variant market was born. Now, there wasn't a lot of, you know, we didn't see what we see today with, you know, the prices being different or anything like that. Just, oh, you got the di- you, you got the diamond. All right. Like you got you got the one from the comic shop. You went out of your way. Yeah, with very rare exceptions was that the case where it wasn't really considered a, a big deal. Right. Uh, you know, and some really, you know, before the big comic boom, um, you did have like things like I remember Star Wars. It was kind of a, a big deal to not have the to have like the the rack jobber version because there were presumably fewer of them that weren't just trashed. Now I want to flash forward, okay? I want to flash forward to. 1989. So we've established that that's how they started. There were a few small variants here and there throughout comics, just kind of as a, as a throw me, as a, you know, like they never really worked though. Nobody cared because, you know, back in the day, back when I, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't give, we didn't give two shits about, you know, your variant because nobody was going to college on these comic books back then. It was just, they were fun to read. You bought them the same way you bought, um, you know, D and D manuals or your favorite paperback author. You you had a collection of them, of course you did. But you, yeah, but they weren't valued collectibles at that point. You weren't you know you weren't selling them to anybody to make a profit really at that point. I'm sure there are a few industrious people who thought that they had an edge, but overall. So let's flash forward to eighty nine. Eighty nine was an important year because two things happened for DC Comics. Number one, they had a really important movie coming out. Yes. In the, in terms of Michael Keaton's Batman, which is still to this day the apex predator of Batman movies, and you'll I'll fight you to the death if you say otherwise. <laughs> um, and Legends of the Dark Knight number one was coming out. Um, they had an idea that they were going to um, they they were going to release. You know, this was, I think this was the third or fourth title. Keep it, this is how weird this is going to (laughs) sound. This is the third or fourth Batman title that they were running at the same time, and they were really afraid. Oh, I think it was, was it Shadows of the Bat, maybe? Was that the one? No, it was Legends of of the Dark Knight. Yeah. That's right, okay. Um, But this is the first time they were running that many Batman books at once, and they were afraid. Like, like, you know, that would be a monthly Batman title. They were scared that they weren't going to be able to support that kind of weight, that it wasn't going to be that that Batman wasn't load bearing enough. So right before it was released, who did he think he was? Spider-Man at that time? Right. 89. Who else would it have been? Um, I guess that's about it. (laughs) Spider-Man. Spider-Man and Noon Knight. Noon Knight had seven books out at once. And it was like 12, 10. They all failed miserably. 12, 20. But they, because all of them, all of the titles came out the same month. Yeah, it was. It was was like the month of number ones. It was the only title Muggerville Publications was publishing. People literally thought it was all variants of the same comic. Wasn't. 
it wasn't. Um, no. It literally crushed. That was that was the crushing blow for uh, for for Buggerville Comics right yeah. there. Never really recovered. Thankfully, no. Malibu Comics, but they, Jim Shooter stepped up um, and bought Muggerville. <laughs> That's right. Um, so they decided they were going to release five covers for Legends of the Dark Knight 1. It was as simple as this. And we're going to flash forward after this. We're not going to get hung up on variants, yeah. but this is really interesting. So they released five covers, and all it is is kind of the cowl um, superimposed on Batman, like, riding a horse or something (laughs) but they were all different colors there was like a red one and a blue one and an orange one and a purple one and that was it within two months or three months they were shocked they thought people were just going to buy their favorite color (laughs) people were buying sets to have the sets yeah and thusly the variant market for the speculator was born right then and there um Okay, yeah, and now that I am um, have found the images, I remember that. I mean, yeah, you could, all of my favorites were there. Uh, so, so this created yeah, a weird... It was, yeah. It, yeah, it was just, the, you know, it shouldn't have been that big a deal. But people like Batman. Yeah. And, and this came at a, a really interesting, specific, perfect storm time. That perfect storm was three things, okay? Um, well, four things, really. Um, number one, they made this decision to release these five books, um, which at the, which is a brilliant decision, apparently. Um, number two, 89 was the all these card shops that were out there were, were, were starting to feel the effects of the economy and that these cards were not going to support their business anymore so what they did was they reached out to direct distribution and started ordering comics for their card shops yes Um, that was becoming increasingly common in fact in the late 80s early 90s especially when the comic speculation boom was at its height but even before that you there were distribution channels beyond normal distribution you had a burgeoning sub distributor market that then you know found their own clientele who couldn't afford to go to friendly franks or diamond or uh, capital but could afford to go to a sub distributor whose minimums were much lower or who was just willing to sell you whatever you cherry picked right because they were going to make their money over a large number of retailers rather than a small number of collectors. Right, sure. Actors. That all changed. It was a whole different story. But uh, but there was a time where, you know, at, at its heyday, everybody wanted to get in on comics. Yeah, this is that time period. Like, uh, well, and, and the reason is the same thing we're seeing today, um, and we've talked about, is we're talking 89 late 80s early 90s 20 years earlier all of these kids are buying comics and loving comics and they grew up and they had money and they wanted to relive their youth just like we are today the same reason we have a podcast the same reason i have shelves of collected comics and action figures and 
All of a oh, sudden, yeah, adulthood has been the best revenge. <laughs> all of a sudden, there is this demand for comics, back yes. issues, current stuff. You have these card shops buying comics, have no idea what comics are about, but they saw on the news that comics were the new thing. They're buying comics. Oh, yeah, and everyone wants to get in on the hot new thing. I mean, it's you know, there's gold in them, thar hills. Nobody more so than in 1991, the final piece of this puzzle being Garib Sheamus. Uh, 91, Wizard is, is released. So up to that point, Overstreet Price Guide is the go-to. Cole, do you want to talk about Overstreet for a couple minutes? Well, let's, let's talk about Robert M. Overstreet a little bit. Dr. Robert M. Doctor. Uh, who, for the longest time would publish an annual price guide. This was a massive tome. It was about three inches thick. And it listed, you would think it listed every comic ever created. It didn't. <laughs> but it gave that illusion. And you would go and buy the, the latest issue because this was published annually, which meant only once a year did you have any idea what your comics were worth. And supposedly the way it worked is there were a volume of kind of agent retailers. Okay. Who would report sales, especially of high-end collectibles. And Overstreet's crack team would, as I understand it, would then in turn uh, average out all of these disparate uh, data and arrive at the average national retail price okay. of books. Well, you know, with 150 billion issues over thousands of titles, you can imagine how untenable that would be in even the course of a year. Right. So in the background, there's a lot of dubious behavior, I'm certain. Sure. And it was more or less revealed when, with the advent of the Red Brown uh, <laughs> Captain America with your Italian red skull and your very awkward rubber suit with the rubber ears on the outside. And the floppy shield. Yeah, the floppy shield. Um, but knowing there was going to be a Captain America movie a real live movie, Overstreet grossly out overvalued everything Captain America that year. Right. And it was patently and painfully obvious. And sort of the veil had been lifted for those who hadn't already caught on that it was a complete fallacy. But also over time, as your comic market begins to emerge and become its own thing, Overstreet's begins to produce supplemental price guides. Oh, really? And you have to understand that all of this occurs in a period where a published volume like this was your sole means to discover values. Well, that's why price guides, there are whole sections in bookstores. Yes. Of price guides for everything. One of my favorites is like the price guide for in. American Indian Arrowheads, like how that's like you know that's like the the price guide for the pottery from Ghost. I mean, <laughs> it's not like you know, these were 
actual working tools of a, of a people of a culture it's not like they were mass producing them for sale and then you know some of them were oh we only made so many of this type of flint no <laughs> i mean that's to me always seemed like an unquantifiable abstract right because frankly no two were alike but also it's like the price guide to snowflakes if you could preserve it. <laughs> there's no two would be like how do you differentiate but keep in mind at this point that um, according to the courts, if they, oh, if yes, they print it, true. it's true. That's what it is. That's why that's every true. comic shop on, you know, everywhere had Overstreet's price guide sitting behind the counter. And oh, and what was amazing is sometimes you would go to a comic shop and they would have last year's dog-eared and beaten mm-hmm. and this year's brand new one. Yep. And, and very often... You, you tended to see only like two, maybe three, because they were fat books, and that takes up a lot of real estate after a while. I mean, you, you know, it'd be kind of funny to see if there was like a, somebody had a whole collection of ones that were yellowed pages that were the first one they ever used, and but it was like literally that was the and you would go to conventions sometimes or and things and ask someone what well, how much is this comic and you know here would come the overstreets and away would go Cole. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I can't I can't count how many how many times in my life I've wanted to buy a comic from a back issue bin and somebody pulled out an overstreet. <laughs> yeah. Um but yeah, uh whereas with... it was known in the day of the overpriced street guide. <laughs> it was Overstreet's price guide, but it was often called the overpriced street guide. But uh Wizard supplanted them because Wizard did this amazing combination of, you know, it was the, it's, it was, it was dopamine on paper. Yes. It was, you feel good about yourself. Everything you have is worth money. Um, and you're going to be rich. And these professional wrestlers are going to play Sabretooth in the X-Men movie. Uh, go get you some boyo. Like, well, it had a wonderful combination of a very puerile sense of humor. Right. That this is the era where, to my reckoning, sour candy becomes popularized. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's and a really was, good analogy. Yeah, this was the Sour Patch Kids of comics. That's a fantastic analogy, Cole. So, <laughs> hey, Sour Patch Kids comics. So what people were doing at that point, and Wizard was, Overstreet was a industry guide, and it looked like an industry guide. It was not, if you were a comic book nerd, 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 you know, the nerd, Overstreet was awesome. Overstreet was awesome for the same reason that reading the monster manual was awesome that we talked about before, because it was all stats, baby. Overstreet became... (laughs) The village elder after the printed word. Okay. <laughs> that literally there is a direct corollary between, you know, oftentimes you will see the question posed where, at what point did we stop respecting our elders? At the point where we no longer needed them to be our conduit. Right. <laughs> after the printed word and mass education you no longer needed the oral traditions of 
Emmy culture. Overstreet becomes that oral tradition, that that venerated resource. Right. Then, it's like damned American gods, you know, like mm-hmm. all this, you know, media and the World Wide Web come along and you don't need the old anymore. Well, you got rid of... Uh... You got rid of the divine right of kings at some point. You didn't need anybody yeah. to speak directly to the gods, um, but you did need to be entertained. And you and and the, and what wizard? Yeah, did... Leonidas Overstreet didn't have to climb that crap ass <laughs> mountain and talk to the oracle. God damn it! <laughs> but <laughs> but what wizard did really smartly, and this might be a contentious thing to say, is understand that the next generation coming up needed to feel special in a certain way. And I'll tell you right now, I fell into that trap hook, line and sinker, you know, needed to feel like they, like what they were doing, what they were spending their money on was worth something. Well, what it did was allow collectors of all ages to have in print a justification. Why are you buying funny books? Really? That's some serious dough. Yeah, yeah. Your little your ten comic boxes are worth forty thousand dollars. Well, no, they're not. But Wizard says they are. So Wizard, what Wizard did very shrewdly was Wizard Magazine was actually born out of the comic or the newsletter that young Garib Seamus produced for his mom's comic shop. Right if I remember the the tale correctly. So he and his friends would put together a newsletter, and then somebody got the idea, let's just go full bore. And if you look at Wizard 1, 2, 3, for one thing, you can see that they rode the coattails of Image. Oh, they were in bed with Image. Yeah, from day one. I mean, there, there was no courtship. They just went straight to the motel. And then, so that they had this association with the hot new thing. It was sexy. It was yeah. a sexy book. And, for and a... then they slowly, but if you watch the evolution of the early issues, they begin to jettison the things that aren't self-serving. Right. And then they fold in a very puerile sense of humor. So it appeals to the, the yuckster. They tell the comic collector speculator or just the collector you're on the right track to success, mister. Right. You don't have to find a an Action Comics number one uh, that somehow got walled in when the, the new drywall was installed when somebody else's great-grandpa put it there as a nine-year-old. Right. To make a fortune. You can make a fortune off the stuff that you just bought 16 weeks ago at your local comic shop. But what it also recognized is Overstreet was annual. Yep. You get 12 issues of Wizard chock full of fart jokes and uh, casting calls and Halloween costume images with Chunky Gambit and that poor little chubby kid dresses Captain America kind of doing a forward thrust with the shield. And they put the caption, the uh, word bubble, cake. Well, that was one thing you could count on every October issue was them, like, they would have three things. They would have the super hot babe. Yep. They'd have the chunky guy or kid in a costume. 
and they would have the saccharin, the the kid that was so cute you had to pass the insulin. Right. He was so saccharin. But uh, like God, I can I can envision that kid done up as uh, Nightcrawler. I Holy see. God! Yeah. It took thirty years for somebody to supplant that image in my mind with that damn baby Yoda. <laughs> But, That's how cute this kid was. But that meant every month, every month, if there was an X-Men movie coming out, X-Men number one would be $25. Yeah. You know, your new X-Men, Jim Lee number one would be $25, up from up from 15 the month before. They could manipulate the prices. And remember, according to the courts, if they printed it, it was true, yeah. not, not foreseeing this being an issue. So it's the perfect storm for all of those crazy glow-in-the-dark Ghost Rider covers, your Chromium Silver Surfers, your X-Men number one. Your your, your, your red Chromium Fantastic Four yes. uh, embossed uh, Johnny Human Torch there. It was a right. stunning cover. Uh, let, let's speak to one of the – even the indies jumped on the bandwagon. Look at Bloodshot number one. Yep. The cover alone cost them more than the cover price. Yep. It was insanity. Uh, Marvels, if you've ever wondered why, if you find a back issue of Marvels, it has that weird Lucite cover, it's because that was what came out of a failed attempt to print the cover. They wanted to print elements of the cover almost like cartoons, where, you know, a cartoon cell overlays a Oh, yeah, yeah. And it failed miserably, so they just decided to probably bought a crap ton of Lucite, so they just printed the Marvel's logo on there and then gave you, that way it, it was sort of like being able to peel all the Indictia away and enjoy that gorgeous uh, Alex Ross artwork. But it wasn't the effect they were originally looking for. So when that dried up, when all of the Chromium, uh, you know, I was personally waiting for the, the Path the Bunny-style beast cover for uh, X-Men. <laughs> We'd have actually a little swatch of blue fur there you could pet. So we thought it was dead in the 90s. Yeah, it, it died the kind of death it deserved to die. But really quickly, touching on Wizard, because it was a monthly and because it appealed, it, it was basically... The best thing that ever happened to retailers is they could start, turn around and sell to their customers as well. Oh, no, yes. Just while it told you that your collection was worth a fortune, it told them that everything they – that all their pricing was wrong. They were missing out. Yes. And nothing was – it was like, the, you know, like I said, with Overstreet's. If somebody pulled out an Overstreet, I would walk away. And Wizard became the go-to. The latest issue Wizard – you would go into a comic and toy show, and the one in five retailers had a wizard and a toy fair. Yep. Because toy fair was to the toy collector what wizard was to the comic collector. Yes. Yes. And another difference was that Overstreet was more scarce. Overstreet always was something that only the retailer kind of it was a tome it was like a it was the well, necronomicon you know exactly well overstreet an annual overstreet would probably and this is just a conservative estimate here in its day would probably cost you 25 or 30 bucks 
Right. And as a comic collector, that was a lot of comics in the days of the forty cent and forty five or forty cent fifty cent comic. Also, where do you? So get you're it? right that it was it was sort of like the early days of uh, VHS tapes. You know, until Beverly Hills Cop broke the the mold and said, "Hey, hey, why don't we sell a whole bunch of copies at twenty apiece instead of selling a handful at a hundred apiece?" And and it was it, for me, it was always, "Where do you get it?" Yeah, that's true. Not everybody stocked it because it was expensive to buy or wholesale. And no, and they didn't sell it a lot because nobody would buy it. They would rely yeah. on the comic shop to have that information. You know, that's. But Wizard was available at every bookstore, at every comic shop, because guess what? The comic shop wanted you to have it in hand as bad as they wanted to have it behind the counter. Exactly. So you had this perfect storm. All of the crazy variants kind of died when the bubble burst, when everybody kind of realized the speculator market isn't going to necessarily do what you think it's going to do. But it didn't die. It just laid dormant and evolved into yes. let's not do – so somebody had the bright idea. at the So in 2000 so – around 2009, okay, so let's not do the crazy gimmicky stuff, but let's go back to having some variant covers. Okay. Let's so, encourage overbuying. So we're going to have – In a some, new way. Yeah. So – but not necessarily overbuying at a consumer level. Let's do overbuying at a retail level. So here's how we're going to do it. Up to this point, let's say you bought 10 issues. Let's say it was, I don't know, uh, Dark Avengers number one. And you want, and, and, and you're going to, if you buy 10, if you buy nine issues of Dark Avengers number one, you will, and this has been, this was the formula up to that point. If you buy nine issues of Dark Avengers number one, you will get one of, you will get, and you will get the variant, the variant cover, the one <laughs> variant cover that we have to offer of Dark Avengers number one. So you can do with that what you will. Mark it up, put it in your store, whatever you want. Well, yeah. Marvel then changed it and said, okay, we're going to change it. You have to buy ten issues <laughs> to get one. Um, so at that point, you have to start guessing as a retailer how many you're going to sell. Because 10 is kind of standard. Yeah. You start buying 11, you know, and and they're starting to call it it'll, – it'll act as, as a sort of insurance for your covers. You'll be able to mark this up. If, you're, if your comic costs 250 you can you can sell this at 10 That way, if you don't – if you don't sell, you know, four of those issues, you can sell this one and make your money back. That's going to make back the money that you spent on, on ordering those extra ones to get the variant. Yeah. Dumb. Um, sorry. <laughs> um, and from there, because they wanted invented scarcity, they released New Avengers, and it sold better than any comic they had sold in God knows how long. Yes, exactly. And they chalked that up to the fact that that is when they changed their algorithm from 1 in 10 to 1 in 11. That's when they decided, oh, well, we just, you know, we can draw a direct line between this change and this comic. That's what happened. Let's crank it up. So yeah. Marvel went from 1 in 10 to 1 in 15, and a year later, 1 in 20. So now they're up to 1 in 20. 
the new 52, DC's new 52, had a sketch variant. Now, the new 52, I think, had 20 number one issues on their relaunch. So they relaunched 20 comics at the same time at number one. We did a, We actually did a show on that. Yes. <laughs> um, that was one of our early shows because we were mad about the renumbering. Um, <laughs> at a with one sketch cover, every one in two hundred issues. So every one in two hundred issues, you, if you were a comic shop, you had to buy two hundred issues to get one sketch cover. Twenty books. If you wanted all twenty sketch covers, you were buying two hundred issues of twenty books to get it. Cole, that, you, just putting your head around that is... Yeah, you ran a small comic shop. I did indeed. Could you have bought 200 issues of one, let alone... Well, let, let's, let's put this in perspective. The only time I ever bought in on one of these schemes was when Mirage Studios returns with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and that was going to be a kind of big deal. Right. The, you know, the, the turtles were back. I think this was after Eastman and Laird had parted company and such. But, you know, effectively you had a brand new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles run starting over with the first issue. And they had the most reasonable one of these sort of variant cover buy-in schemes, and that was a 10 and 1. If you bought 10 copies, which was pushing it for us because we our stock and trade was among other things at the time I could boast having the largest selection of Star Wars toys and collectibles in the entire Dallas Fort Worth area right. uh, on you know readily available for your purchase so we did statuary and stuff like that comics was kind of a sidebar I felt it was necessary once we had a, a proper brick and mortar location but we still stuck with the kind of stuff we preferred at shows. But, you know, I was willing to, to do that. And I took that, my ten copies or whatever was left in the store and the and my one variant to a convention and wound up displaying the variant uh, on a little ledge behind us in the, the place where we were as it you know, worked out. There's like a handy little place to put the thing. And then packed up after the weekend and walked right out without it. Damn. <laughs> But, you know, that was a even more costly because, you know, I figured I could probably move the, the bulk of those 10. And so we weren't asking the sky for the, the damn thing and probably almost sold it a couple of times. But, you know, that was still a lot. I didn't buy 10 of anything. Right. For the most part. And, you know, there was no way that, the level of comics we were buying, uh, you know, if it wasn't for all the other collectibles folded into the mix, we probably couldn't have had a diamond account. I think at the time our minimum at retail was $600 or retail slash net price and uh, a month. So you can imagine that kind of, you know, just edging in that 600 a month. Right. Uh, pre-sale. There was no way we were going to, touch these things and then you know that volume of cash that you're talking about as an outlay to get the one in a hundred or what have you for that many titles um brings to mind another phenomenon yes that came into play and that was the retail shop exclusive 
Yes. Cover in that if your local comic shop was willing to pay for the print run of the front cover of the cover of the book in a fairly significant and worthwhile volume for the printer, I don't know what I would wager it was probably in the minimum of at least probably more uh, copies. You could have your own variant cover. Right. Uh, one of my personal favorites was the Godzilla mm-hmm. from Dark Horse, where it was a giant Godzilla foot crushing, in some cases, a custom drawn to look exactly like the front of your comic shop. Comic shop. In other cases, it was just your logo uh, being destroyed. <laughs> I don't know that I mind that as much. I, I. I don't mind it as much per se, except in so much as exclusivity in in my mind and in my experience alike have become, and we you know we talk about this every year at Comic Con, the collection assassin. Every year I hear about some you know you'll see posts on Facebook groups or you'll hear about people who are like, well that's it I'm out. Yeah. Because they're tired of the inaccessibility that is ruinous to the hobby. It's false scarcity. They're creating false scarcity. And my problem with it, outside of just the speculator market, is how many great comics are out there that we don't hear about because we're too busy talking about the fact that... um, (laughs) <laughs> that bat that, that uh the Batman wedding comic had a hundred and four variant covers, hundred and four. That you know your Godzilla, your 2011 Godzilla King of Mo- Kingdom of Monsters had a hundred and four variant covers. That Spider Man six 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 had a hundred and forty five variant covers. People are well, trying. Thank God it didn't have six hundred and sixty six covers. Right, that would have been much. Uh, the Star Wars variant cover, and some of these variant covers are really cool. Um, yeah. The guy that does the the guy that you know that does them as uh, action figures. Yeah, in fact, I uh, an interesting story about uh, Christopher Tyler Short, who uh, did those amazing, uh, especially for Star Wars, but also for some other uh, Marvel titles. Uh, this kind of packaged action figure looking variants uh, met him at a convention many years ago and absolutely wonderful guy but he talked about how literally there is a variant cover of I can't remember if it's Star Wars number one or a later issue and I'm going to be too lazy to get up and turn around and walk across the room to look at my the one I've got I was very fortunate that depending on who you ask that cover sold out almost instantly and it turned out that there was some misinformation and it didn't. I mean, the thing did damn near sell out almost to a, a copy after all. But he did a an image of a vintage Star Wars carded Boba Fett as a variant. Right. And rather than Marvel buying that, he literally bet the house on paying for, I forget, like a thousand copy print run or two thousand copy print run for some ungodly amount of cash so that he could have his own personal variant that he could take with him to conventions. Oh, really? 
which it was kind of a, a wonderful novel idea. It was in the same vein as the within those nearly a hundred Star Wars number ones. There were a lot of them that were you know exclusive to Golden Apple Comics, or you know the the variants were specific to one comic shop that was the one place you could get them in the initial market. Right. And what that did was create this one that was was not that easy to get to. And apparently they wound up frantically, you know, shipping a ton of these things out to people who bought them. Uh, and and it turned out to be a very good investment, but it was a nail biter for him. Wow. And, you know, that's just a guy. Yeah. To have something he can sell at conventions because he owns that print run. Right. He, he had prints of some of his covers, including um, some of the Star Wars covers with him there, that he was autographing and just giving to people because he didn't own the rights to sell the prints. Right. And here's a guy who did the actual artwork that was published by the publisher in a situation, in an environment where over at the Artist's Alley of conventions I'm sure he was at, people were selling their own art unlicensed of every licensed property in the catalog. Yeah. Yeah. Ad nauseum. And he can't sell the stuff that he did for the damn publisher. Right. That's a whole nother. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. A that's, whole a, nother. that's a belly wick of its own. But uh, I thought that that was a, a wonderful kind of tale of one of the variants and what became of it. And I was very fortunate to be able to buy. Um, I, mean, I think I paid like 30 bucks for the thing, but it probably, you know, if Wizard was still around, it would be worth 300 But um, <laughs> But the thing about it was that it just talking to him gave tremendous insight into how the store-specific ones, how does that even work? How's that a thing? How does that work? Right. And and like I said, if if the store is willing to, to shell out the geld to get them a to get a store specific one made that has their I know I've I a, a few of my friends, you know, that work, you know, own worker own comic shops, you know, here in Dayton or Yellow Springs have had their have had that done. You know, and I, I don't think it's too ungodly expensive for them to do it. And it's a cool little memento to say I was on the cover of Godzilla. Yeah, exactly. So I'm not that broken up about those. It's the it's the sketch covers. It's the like you said, the blue lines. Okay. Yes. Well, one of the the other things that is a more recent phenomenon, and this is one of the biggest cash grabs ever, and in fact, one of the most shrewd, is the blank cover. Yeah. This is a match game. This is where there's nothing on the cover but the logo and Indictia. Right. And to me, that is the best variant because every artist and artist wannabe, and I actually somewhere in my studio have a couple of blank cover comics I picked up just so I could goof around and do something stupid with them and maybe uh, give it away if anybody was willing to take it. Uh who wanted my god-awful artwork. But, um, you know, I did get a Star Wars blank cover. I don't know what issue it was, so that, um, because I got to be pretty well-known for doing these silly little drawings of Jabba the Hutt in all kinds of different ways, and that was my thing. And, you know, and a non-sequitur, Eddie Medina, who 
is a an actual published comic artist. Yeah, a professional artist was amazed watching me do one of my Java sketches. You do that entirely freehand. I'm like, why wouldn't I? He's like, no, you you're supposed to like you know draw a framework and, and work on that. Yeah, like, no, it's like muscle memory now. <laughs> like I just do it. I don't know what. You're... Yeah, I mean, you go right ahead, but uh, but you know. Eddie and uh, Bobby Blakey and, and many other artists I know have utilized that to to make these, you know, exercise their creativity and make something that they then in turn can sell or have done commissions to fill in the blank, as it were. And you talk about cash grab. I mean, you could make the worst god-awful title. You could just, like, get some hack on the street to write a, a Spider-Man story. But you put it out with a blank cover, mm-hmm. and every one of that that entire print run will sell, because nobody gives a rat's ass about what's in the side of me. No, no, they don't. They don't. Um, so yeah, that's that's good. Like I said, I'm, I don't know what the hell issue of Star Wars it was, but I drew Job the Hut on it. And, um, Bobby Blakey drew like Sice Noodles and somebody <laughs> else, and uh, a number of other artists uh, joined the fun and. But that's, you know, but... Well, actually, I think I drew the ranker. I hadn't had never quite got around the job, and the, the idea was we are going to do, like, this jam cover we could raffle off or something, and I, I think Eddie still has it, so shame. <laughs> but we... But, I mean, that's kind of... That's mm-hmm. kind of the, the point of this, is you're now releasing literally something with nothing on it. Yeah. <laughs> and selling it at cover value... Yes, exactly. To people who have no interest in having the book, and their interest is in, and here's the here is the real rub of the of the blank cover. You're gonna buy this book. You're gonna buy this issue of um, Avengers number one of the new the the recently released Avengers number one. You're gonna buy it blank. You're going to then you're buying it for a particular purpose. You're buying it to take it to North Dallas. North Texas Comic Show or Wizard World Chicago, and then pay another twenty five dollars to have, you know, somebody sign it, yeah, or draw do a sketch on it even further, in order to, you know, or spend like a hundred or two hundred have a fully realized yes. sketch by a legendary comic artist that doesn't exist anywhere else on the cover of Avengers number whatever, yes. Now, if you are somebody that is doing it because you love that artist or, you know, you love it, good on you. Do it. I've got a Jim Lee sketch in a sketchbook somewhere around here that I paid nothing for because I'm old and that's the way it used to work. Um, But if you're doing it because then you want to turn around and sell it on eBay the same way you went out on Force Friday and bought 17 Chrome – Mandalorians. Mandalorians and are selling them for 60 bucks a pop on eBay, you can straight kiss my ass. <laughs> how about how about you can just straight kiss my ass? Um, yeah. So that's really it for the variants. You know, I, do you want to move on to uh, to really quickly touch on things like uh, – Oh, absolutely. Like but cash before grab you, deaths I... or – I want to talk about cash grabs in general, but the, these variants especially. You know, we can piss and moan about this all we want. And I will. And we, yeah, and, and God knows we we both will. But at the end of the day, 
you know, our greatest defense against this phenomenon is to ignore it. If to a man, comic fans said enough is enough, then retail unfortunately suffers but loses faith in the variant. And when the retail loses faith in the variant, publishers lose faith in the variant. And we can all get back to reading, collecting, and enjoying comics, which probably would have been better to wait till the very end of the show. But, <laughs> <you get the>, <laughs> <laughs> but Cole, there's always going to be those people out there now that are going to view this as the way, as an investment, which history has borne oh, yes. out. It is not an investment, but no. you're never going to be able to convince people of that. So I as we discussed in the very right. next issue of this show, all those years ago in the comics, uh, commerce and the almighty buck part two collection equals tuition. Yep. And I think that that's the overall problem with this is there's always going to be that person out there now that's riding the roller coaster, that's looking at it like an investment, that thinks that if they can get the right thing and sell it at the right time, then they're going to you know manipulate the market in their favor. And you know I fell into that trap at one point. I think we all did. How yeah, many and, issues of Web of Spider-Man do you do Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, you shut your mouth. That's going to put my <laughs> kids through college if I ever have kids. That's honestly the reason I don't have kids is Web of Spider-Man. That's right. When I found out I wouldn't be able to put them through college, I decided not to have kids. I got burnt too hard. That's right. I blame you, Web of Spider-Man. Those damn 7-Elevens we went to that... All over Dallas looking for damn web of Spider-Man number ones because just because Duncanville Bookstore sold out. And I, I think at this point we jump ship and we talk about some some just straight up storyline cash grabs. A few of those that have happened, you know, in the past. Oh, absolutely! If you don't want to mess with variant covers and <laughs> chromy gimmicks, the death of Superman, um, the outing of North Star, the any number of things that escape me at the moment. If you want another good way to have a great cash grab, marry off a famous couple. Oh God! Uh, kill someone. The death of Johnny Human Torch, or like an issue Wolverine. after his yeah, after his supposed death. Um, you had. Uh, this one issue, I remember somebody just gushing over it, and I, I got the thing, I was like, there's not a single word in it. That's the right thing. I'm like, no, that's a ripoff. Right. You were sold a bill of goods. Right. Well, the most egregious that I can see in recent memory is the, 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 the impending wedding of Batman. This thing was hyped <laughs> to the nines, right? You had... This year-long, you know, it was teased. There was this year-long courtship. You know, Batman and Selina were hanging out with Clark and Lois. You know, they were. You get all the way up to the to the day of the wedding, and they're you know trying on dresses and talking about how you know oh you look you know blah blah, blah. and it, and of course it doesn't happen. No. And of course it doesn't happen because Gotham needs a Batman and Batman can't be happy. 
But the problem with that is it was never going to happen. This isn't a surprise that they decided at the last minute in the bullpen. Like, if you didn't see this coming, (laughs) that's kind of on you. Um, (laughs) But that didn't stop them from, like I just said, that did not stop them from putting out 104 variants for the Batman wedding issue. Good Lord. So was it a cash grab? I think it probably was. It certainly wasn't great storytelling. I'll tell you that. I think it was, I think it was pretty much a cash grab. Um, another one that got me was anytime you have the death of one of these major iconic characters, you can pretty much rest assured that it's going to be a cash grab. So like you said, the death of the human torch, very well touted, very big. We're going to kill the human torch. Yeah. How long did that last? Three months? Uh, Yeah, I think they, it was just due to some editorial error. Oh, is that right? Yeah, it was originally meant to be a month. One month. Sure. Just Uh, one month. We're, We're in, we're out. We're in, we're out. Uh, Wolverine lasted like a year at least. Yeah. But throughout that entire year, here's the thing. They kill Wolverine. They kill Wolverine in a six-issue story arc called The Death of Wolverine. Then they have six more issues about the fallout of The Death of Wolverine. By the time those are done, pretty much Wolverine is back. Yeah. So he never went away. You're never going to have another Bucky Barnes. Just like Big Boy. (laughs) In many ways, he never went away. He's always offered delicious food at competitive prices. That's true. That's true. But you're never going to have another Bucky Barnes that's gone for 50 years. Exactly. It's never going to happen again. It's never going to happen. You're never going to have that that storyline that took forever to finally happen because – Nobody could be like Roger Stern and say, no, this is a bad idea after all. Right. Right. Stern was at least going to resurrect him, what, 20 years later? Right. Um, There is one other thing I wanted to talk about tonight. And I want to talk about it just, A, because it's a cash grab in the comics industry, in the same way that the variants are cash grabs. Yeah. B, I also love to say these words and just... I live like 1,400 miles from Cole at this point, and I can feel his anger when I say these (laughs) words from here. So see if you can all stop right now and feel Cole's anger when I say, Cole, tell me how you feel about comic grading. Do you feel it? Do you feel it? I feel it. I I was just (laughs) hoping you were going to talk about bone claws. No, no. We're talking about comic grading. Fair. You kind of went Jerry Lewis for a second. I don't know if you realize that, but you kind of went, Jab a lady with the bone That's claws. That's Maven Flavin. Yeah. You're in your bone claws. <laughs> so what, what are your thoughts on comic grading, Cole? I want to tell an uplifting tale. Oh, no. About comic grading. Okay. Because comic grading is one of the worst cash grabs ever. <laughs> but here's because... the thing, Cole. It's not just comics grading anymore. No, you it's everything. Toys Every... graded now. You can have your Native American arrowheads graded. 
and slabbed. <laughs> but okay. I think as comic fans and collectors, most of us, perhaps all of us, are very much aware of, if not by number, because I don't, I'm not going to try to espouse the number here, but the issue of the Secret Wars in which effectively Venom was born. Right. With the advent, the arrival, the first appearance of the black costume. Yes. And I was, I just want to say, uh, Andy McMahon of Duncanville Comics in Duncanville, Texas, was never more incredible as a comic book retailer and a man. <laughs> the, the okay. day I was in that comic shop, and among some recent purchases, they had that issue of Secret Wars that apparently someone was inquiring about buying that was slabbed. And that, of course, was something that made it less appealing to their would-be customer. And Andy manhandled the hell out of that hunk of plastic and was able to crack it open like an oyster <laughs> and remove the delicious meat that is that book from its cold lucite prison. And for that, God bless that man. Because that spoke to everything. Because like Wizard Magazine, the grading authority companies sell you a bill of goods. They are the new means by which you are convinced that your comics are worth a fortune. And then they convince you to spend a fortune to preserve, protect, and enhance that fortune that does not exist. And the people who are going to, in the long run, make their money on grading and slabbing comics are the graders. Yes. Unless you are, was it the CBC or whatever, you know, unless you're there, CBA or the, you know, unless you're the grading authority of some kind. And I think in many ways the courts would say that if you grade it, it is true. I think so. And in fact, for a while, I think Wizard even had a graded yeah. price guide. Yeah. That's how, you know, at the in the early days, that helped. They scratched the back of that young industry. And in the end, the only people who really want comics to be slabbed are the graders. And we did talk about this once, that there was a, uh, when we were doing our uh various legal stories about comics. If you have a supremely rare issue of something like fantastic four, number one, and as near impeccable condition as possible, there is a good reason to get it graded because they not only meticulously examine the book, but they meticulously record. And there were cases where yes. slab comics were recovered because the grading system had so meticulously cataloged every nuance that it was easy to identify, well, this is like those preserved snowflakes. No two are going to be alike. Right. There isn't going to be another copy of Fantastic Four number one with that particular blemish. So it's 
you know, it's like going into the hardware store and everybody has to buy a hammer. You know, just because it's a good tool doesn't mean we all need to own one. Well, I'm always going to – you're right. There is 100% an, a, a reason to slab a comic if it is so rare that you want it to be archived. You you want it to be protected. Your issue of cable number one is not that comic. <laughs> you are spending money on nothing. And I have a problem with it because in my mind, comics are meant to be read. They yes. are they are they are they are a form of literature that is meant to be read. If you slab it, you cannot get into it at all. Ever. Unless your comic retailer cracks it open like the oyster it is. It is one of the most egregious cash grabs. Yeah. You want to talk about something that that increases the false value of something. It is taking something and saying, oh, yeah, well, this is a, a 7.9. This is the condition it's in. It's always going to be a 7.9. But the value of it is, you know, it's like getting a first edition Robert Louis Stevenson and never opening it and reading the first page. Yeah. It's it's disheartening. But OK, I, 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 I yes, I, I, I step no, down. You're, you're, you've become me for a moment. Oh, I'm I, with I, you. Was... I just like to hear you lose your mind. Yeah. All right. Let's I think we've done enough tonight, man. We have. We have uh, ranted and raved tonight. Is there anything that you want to touch on before we before we walk away? We light the match and not look back and walk away from this. Yeah, I, I think this one needs to to go away for another nine years or whatever it was. Because it makes years. us so angry. Yeah. <laughs> and we already do that annually with damn San Diego Comic Con. I know. And we're still months out from that angst fest. That's true. That's true. Um, all right. Well, if we're putting this one to bed, let's put it to bed. I think I, I need to just walk away from this. It doesn't deserve my attention. No, in, in all honesty, again, I think that when history repeats itself, it's because we as a culture allow it to. Yeah, all right. I'm with and that. And that was not meant to be, but it can be analogous to other things. Sure. Sure. I'm, I'm going to leave that part where it is You're listening to this in january of 2020 yeah. this that's me holding up a newspaper to this issue yeah. <laughs> it's like those time machine pictures in that malcolm mcdowell movie <laughs> oh god all right so what's what's next tomorrow's paper uh next up uh because i my plans for uh what would be the next issue are falling afoul of the fact that I have not watched the subject matter. <laughs> it's very media-based and non-paper media. It cannot be slabbed. So we're going to talk about, we're going to go back to Toylandia because yeah. we have not visited, we have not been within the city limits of Toylandia in a long time. And, you know, very often we'll do our toy episodes late February, early March, or thereabouts because Toy Fair will have come and gone and we can just gush and drool over all that we know is coming. We're going to talk about 
what came out between last February and February's gone by and all the things that we anxiously awaited that are now here uh, that, you know, like the Doctor Doom figure that oh, is yes. a thing of beauty. Oh, yes. Uh, that, you know, we were just, ah, when, when? Right. And uh, I have mine, and uh, soon Andy will have his that uh, is on going to be shipped away his way because I was fortunate enough to find not one but two. And we're going to talk about the the toys. We're, we're going to take a preemptive strike. You know, years ago I used to write articles about the uh, three and three quarter inch Marvel figures that I really wanted, and over the years I would go back and revisit. I'm like, dang, they've got more than half of them. <laughs> well, we, we won. Yeah, and, and then Marvel Legends has brought a lot of those characters into a larger scale, but they are, are with us as well. And I want to, uh, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about what we want to see, the, the characters we still haven't got. There you go. I like that. I'm into that. I can name a point bunch. Where we're, you know, we're getting Squirrel Girl with a scooter, for God's sake. I mean... Who'd have thought? And there's that just opens doors. What I really enjoy, what what is hard about doing a show like we're going to do, but what I really enjoy about it is it's getting harder to come up with these lists because they're releasing the figures that we want. Yes. And that's awesome. That's good. I'm in yeah, I, I really have to rack my brain and, and cast about to really conjure up who who haven't we seen that I'd love to see. Right. It is good. I'm into that. I want Yeah, that. I mean there's a couple that have been on my list annually that we apparently may never get. You're just never gonna get them, but you never know. Yeah. But you never know. Uh all right, well why don't you uh plug us up and we will get out of here. Absolutely. We are, of course, uh, coming to you from the Jedi Cole universe at JediCole.com. You can uh, write to us if you're so inclined at jcmail at yahoo.com. And uh, be sure and uh, check out the on the first and third Sundays of every month. Granted, it didn't happen in January where uh, there was no Internet at the studio. Yeah, through, through we, no fault of anyone's. Yeah, um, we did not have the second January episode, but you can uh, generally on the first and third Sundays of every month check out the Rantcore Pit Live, the uh, my live streaming uh, Star Wars podcast that uh, originates out of downtown Dallas, which is just an amazing thing to go there twice a month. And you know, here we are in the middle of Dallas and in the Tall Tower, and, and we're. We're live streaming a Star Wars show, for God's sake, uh, on DallasOnAir.com, 1030 to 1130 a.m. Central. Again, that's the first and third Sundays of every month. Uh, if you have not seen The Mandalorian, all eight episodes, do not tune in on the first Sunday of February. <laughs> Because we are not going to hold back in our unabashed celebration of that amazing show. And we're going to talk about everything we can squeeze into an hour. And on the third Sundays of every month, I have my other podcast, the uh, live streaming Isle of Toys. That's A-I-S-L-E. Isle of Toys, uh, which is my, uh, obviously, a toy. Talk about visiting Toylandia. Once a month, I get to 
explore all manner of toys. And we, despite not having it on the third Sunday of the month, on the fourth Sunday, I was able to uh, produce a late version of my January show and uh, talked all about the Mandalorian, the kid or the child toys that will be coming up in, over the next few months. And no sooner did I think I had touched on every single conceivable angle, including a mention of the promised Lego minifig and every plush variant, including the as yet to be visualized Build-A-Bear yes. of the child. Less than a week later, Sideshow Toys, Sideshow Collectibles hauls off and finally announces their insanely cute, insanely dead-on rendition of the child in a one-to-one scale life-size figure. Isn't it just the one from the show? Isn't it essentially... It just, it practically, it's like without being a puppet. You're sort of frozen in this one very uh, petulant moment. Right. And, you know... There's 150,000 different moments you could have chosen, and this one just yourself. It's so damn cute. (laughs) Is it something that Cole will personally invest the staggering $350 in? Damn. You know, it's been a while since $350 seemed like a worthwhile temptation <laughs> but you're being tempted aren't you i am sorely tempted this it, it is a thing of beauty it is a masterpiece of fabric plastic and resin that's awesome oh but, god needless to say there's my nod to what i couldn't talk about because it hadn't been announced yet uh but if you if you, you like the star wars and you like the mandalorian check us out uh this coming sunday it's also just hella fun it's a hella fun oh. show um, you can find us on the socials at HK Comics Show. Like Kelly well, said, I'm very fortunate to have. Go ahead. Oh, I'm just saying I'm very fortunate to have a really great co-host and a really great producer and and talk Lord of the Sith. Uh, oh yeah. As part of the show. Oh yeah, for sure. Um, like Cole said, unslab your comics, break <laughs> your variant bonds. Do not do not be fooled by cash grabs. Buy the comics you want to buy. Read the <laughs> comics you want to read. Um, love the comics you want to love. And join us next week when we talk about the toys that we want to love in our heart of hearts. Um, that's right. The toys that made us want to buy more toys. That's that's right. Uh, if they're going to do a one to one, if they're going to if if Sideshow's going to do a one to one Baby Yoda, I want my one to one Howard the Duck. Make it happen. Um, <laughs> the, the cinematic one or the uh, I want to. Co- I like want the co- original eighties one. Do both. I don't know how they turn them out so fast, but do yep. do a cinematic. Do the eighties. <laughs> do the updated one. Just give me a Howard the Duck. Um, yeah. It's a one to one. I just want a cartoon duck in a, a suit and tie and a little a foppish little hat. That's so much to ask. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Cole. Uh, say good night to these lovely people. Good night, everybody. Good night, everybody, and join us for more Hey Kids Comics next week. 